I was raised to believe that the Bible is a book of morals, and that it defines good versus evil for us within its pages. In the Garden of Eden, however, there were two trees. The tree that brought death was the tree that contained the question of morals, good versus evil. The other tree was a tree that brought life to all the aid of its fruit, the tree of life. Is it possible that we've been asking the wrong questions, chasing the wrong thing by seeking to be moral? Let's run an experiment. Rather than seeking to define and live by good versus evil, let's flip the question. Let's define life instead. But to do that, we must first seek it out. So join us as we dare our as we seek life. Hey there, everybody. Welcome to the Deresh Chai Experiment, the show where we look at scripture and attempt to pull from its pages the things of life. So this thing that we're doing, this shifting of our paradigm from looking at scripture as something that speaks to good versus evil and is trying to make a moral people, and shifting our paradigm to one of life and death, where we look at scripture and it's trying to create a people who bring life, people who operate in the manner of the kingdom that is to come, this kingdom of life in which there is no death. I think, and as I've been really praying, contemplating on it, that this, right now in history, this, this paradigm shift is vitally essential. That we really need to start shifting our focus away from good versus evil. As a society grows, its view of right and wrong shifts. And we've seen that in our own morals. And back in the 50s, you could not get a woman to wear a two-piece bathing suit, a bikini. In fact, the guy who invented the bikinis had to hire prostitutes to wear them in public because no one else would do it. But over time, it became commonplace and the moral compass shifted some on what was acceptable for dress in our society. And it's shifted through all societies and all times. It's something that's constantly moving and shifting and going from one to the other is this moral scale. What is right? What is wrong? Good versus evil. But if we use the scale of life versus death, then there's really not a whole lot of shift that's available. You can try to redefine life, and in fact our culture has attempted to do that through things like eugenics and abortion. But it's not very popular. The abortion is really caught on because they're, they're able to convince people that the, the fetus is not a living being, it's not a actually human, which is absolutely false. Science completely disagrees with that. But now it's becoming more and more commonplace where the assisted suicide, things like that, are becoming more more commonplace where people are just like, yeah, just do me in. And we're, rather than trying to preserve life and preserve the knowledge of the elderly and their experience and learn from it and glean from it, we're just trying to cast it off and have nothing to do with it. So even on that scale of life and death, there is some shift that's going on. But uh, it's something that is a much slower encroachment during in this shift. And we need to shift that conversation back towards life versus death. Forget good versus evil. If you're pursuing life, you will accomplish good. That's just going to be the side effect of it. It's not what we should pursue, because if we look only for good versus evil, then we're going to miss a lot of things we could be doing that would be defined as good, in my opinion. And the more and more I think on it, the more and more it just really makes sense. And the more as I read scripture from this lens, it just makes so much more sense. So I challenge you, just begin to, as you're going through life, as you're faced with tough decisions, rather than is this the right or the wrong or good or evil, ask instead, is this something that will bring life? 
Is this something that will model the kingdom of God as it's described in, in the pages of Scripture? And if it's not, then do the opposite. If it is, then do it. And they might find that uh, making those decisions will become a whole lot easier as you go forward. And one of the things I'm trying to do as we're going through this experiment and as we're doing this this podcast is I'm trying to look at the pages of Scripture from the view of life, right? But more than just trying to define life and death in Scripture, I want to really examine the lives of those in Scripture because all too often we read these stories as static words on a page, you know, okay, this guy did this thing, he did that thing, and he did that thing. We rarely consider the motives behind what they did or the emotions that they felt or the personal struggles that they dealt with in doing the things that they do. And up to this point, there really hasn't been an opportunity to do that. There was a little bit of opportunity with Cain and Abel, a little bit of opportunity with Noah and his sons. But starting here in Genesis 12, we are introduced to a new character who becomes one of the most major characters in the book of Genesis. There's only one other character in Genesis, and that's Jacob, his grandson, that takes up more pages, more space of storytelling time than the character of Abraham, known as Avram, as we meet him now in Genesis 12. This patriarch of Israel, he is the father of nations, and as we consider him, too many times I think we think that he's so far beyond our own understanding, beyond our own conception or comprehension. He's he's just so righteous. He's so above us that we can't really relate to him. And so we put him on a pedestal and we make him as almost as if he's more than human. But as we go through these stories and we look at the struggles of his life and the choices that he makes, I think we'll discover that he is very much human and that he struggles with many of the same things that you and I struggle with today. The choices and the decisions and the, you know, the, the culture's different. Understandings of things like sexuality, things like honor and shame, stuff of that nature is entirely different than our own culture. But the people themselves, the things that they experience, the emotions and the choices that they make, they're all seem to be very similar to how we ourselves view life. And so, rather than just trying to pull out things of life in Scripture, I really want to help bring Scripture alive, to bring these characters into people that we can get to know, that we can learn about. And the story of Abraham, especially here at the very beginning, can teach us some things that are not very easy to learn. It provides a a much closer look at what it means to serve God, to be dedicated to Him, to be a disciple of the kingdom, if you will. His story contains a lot that we can apply to our own lives. A lot of it's not pretty. The story of Abraham is a story of struggle. It's a story of faith, but it's also a story of failure. He's not a perfect guy. He's willing to be used by God, but he fails and he falls probably more times than he is successful. Every time, though, he gets back up and he continues on and he continues in the way that God has for him. And I think that's something that we will we'll really be able to pick up on as we go through these stories. So this week, as we get into Abraham, it begins, the story begins with Abraham being given a command to go do something, and then God promising something if Abraham obeys, if he goes and does this thing. And Abraham responds in obedience. And yet, as we go through the story, we'll see that the the promise that's made, it's not immediately realized in his life. And... In order for Avram to get to the place where that promise can be realized, 
It requires a long segment of his life to be dedicated to the cause and dedicated to this promise without yet seeing the fulfillment of that promise. I think even more specifically, this particular part speaks to the cost of dedication, because dedication is not something that's cheap. Dedication is not the easy road. Being dedicated to the kingdom of God, it is a road that is fraught with sacrifice and difficulty. And that's something that a lot of us don't consider. What will this path cost me? And am I willing to pay that price? And that's something that Yeshua asks us to consider in Luke 14, 28-33. He talks about which one of you, if you're building a tower, won't count up the cost beforehand? Or what king, if he's going out to face an army, is not going to consider the numbers, the cost that it might incur on him, whether or not he could be successful in doing that? And then he equates that to the believer's life. How many of you are willing to pay the price? And how many of you have counted up the cost of what this is going to cost you in your life before you go out and do it? Because if you don't count up that cost and you go out and do that, if you go out and do what is required of you by God, when that cost is exacted from you, you'll quit. It's, it's way too easy to quit. It's not cheap. Discipleship, dedication, it will cost you your life. I'm not talking about martyrship, about dying for the cause. I'm talking about living for the cause. Taking every moment, every breath that you have, that gift that God has given you of life, and returning it back to Him. Okay, While you're still living, paying that price. That doesn't mean proselytizing on Facebook or simply being willing to be made fun of. It doesn't mean going to two different churches or even burying yourself in study rather than going to a party. This means every aspect of your life belongs to God and is to be used for His kingdom. That's a very steep cost. And Yeshua tells us that we should consider the cost before signing up. So the question is, are we willing to pay that cost? Well, Avram pays the cost. He agrees. He demonstrates just how far he is willing to go. Just how far we as believers in the same God should be willing to go in pursuit of righteousness and obedience and in building the kingdom of God. The cost will be high. Yeshua says that. You have to give up everything. We be like the man who didn't consider the cost of the tower? got halfway through, and then when the price was exacted, found out, I just don't have what it takes to do this thing. I can't. I, I can't continue on. Would be like the general who intended to go out to battle without considering his own resources, and gets out there and loses everything. Completely defeated. Taken into captivity. Because he did not beforehand count the cost of his dedication to his cause. Those men that Yeshua describes, they built a foundation on sand. They didn't plan for that shaky future that will come. Will you be one of those people who begins to walk in the path of dedication, and then when it gets difficult, when too much is required, you walk away? That's what we're going to talk about in this Parsha. There's, there's a lot in this Parsha that speaks to that idea. So let's go ahead and open Genesis chapter 12 through 13. Read that, and then we'll come right back here. Genesis 12 through 13. 
And Hashem said to Avram, Go yourself out of your land from your relatives and from your father's house to a land which I show you, and I shall make you a great nation, and bless you and make your name great, and you shall be a blessing. And I shall bless those who bless you and curse those who curses you. And in you all the clans of the earth shall be blessed. So Avram left as Hashem had commanded him, and Lot went out with him. And Avram was seventy-five years old when he set out from Haran. And Avram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the beings whom they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan. And they came to the land of Canaan, and Avram passed through the land to the place of Shechem, as far as the terebinth trees of Moreh. And at that time the Canaanites were in the land. And Hashem appeared to Avram and said, To your seed I give this land. And he built there an altar to Hashem, who had appeared to him. And from there he moved to the mountains east of Bethel. And he pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and I on the east. And he built there an altar to Hashem, and called on the name of Hashem. And Avram set out, continuing toward the south. And a scarcity of food came to be in the land. And Avram went down to Mitzrayim to dwell there, for the scarcity of food was severe in the land. And it came to be when he was close to entering Mitzrayim that he said to Sarai his wife, See, I know that you are a beautiful woman to look at, and it shall be when the Mitzrites see you that they shall say, This is his wife, and they shall kill me, but let you live. Please say that you are my sister, so that it shall be well with me for your sake, and my life be spared because of you. And it came to be when Avram came to Mitzrayim that the Mitzrites saw the woman, and that she was beautiful. And Pharaoh's officials saw her and praised her before Pharaoh, and the woman was taken to Pharaoh's house. And he treated Avram well for her sake. And he had sheep and cattle and male donkeys and male and female servants and female donkeys and camels. But Hashem plagued Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Avram's wife. And Pharaoh called Avram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not inform me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister? And so I was going to take her for my wife. Look, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh commanded his men concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And Avram went up from Mitzrayim to the south, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him. And Avram was very rich in livestock, in silver, and in gold. And he went on his journey from the south as far as Bethel, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there at first. And there Avram called on the name of Hashem. Now Lot, who went with Avram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land was not able to bear them, that they might dwell together, for their possessions were great, so that they could not dwell together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Avram's livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock. And at that time the Canaanites and the Perizzites dwelt in the land. Then Avram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between my herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we are brothers. Is not all in the land before you? Please separate from me. If you take the left, then I go to the right, or if you go to the right, then I go to the left. And Lot lifted his eyes and saw all the plain of the Yarden, and it was well watered everywhere, before Hashem destroyed Sodom and Amorah, like the garden of Hashem, like the land of Mitzrayim as you go toward Soar. So Lot chose for himself all the plain of the Yarden, and Lot moved east. Thus they separated from each other, Avram dwelling in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelling in the cities of the plain, and pitched his tent as far as Sodom. But the men of Saddam were evil and sinned before Hashem, exceedingly so. And after Lot had separated from him, Hashem said to Avram, Now lift up your eyes and look from the place that you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. 
For all of the land which you see I shall give to you and your seed. And I shall make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could count the dust of the earth, then your seed also could be counted. Arise, walk in the land through its length and its width, for I give it to you. So Abram moved his tent and went and dwelt by the terebinth tree of Mamre, which are in Hebron, and built there an altar to Hashem. Wow. Okay, so dedication, discipleship, obedience. All of these things are a response to something. They're not just something that we choose to do for ourselves, that we initiate. And we see that right away in the story of Abram. He is called, and then he responds to that calling, to God initiating that call in his life to follow him. The truth of the matter is, is that we don't initiate our relationship with God, regardless of our upbringing. Being raised at Bob Jones University or being raised in the whorehouse does not determine your outcome in your relationship with God. There are many who have been raised in the church, brought up in supposedly the right ways, and they just go off into their own thing. And then there's people who have been raised in the worst of circumstances that then become the most powerful people in the kingdom of God. So your social status means nothing. Your upbringing means nothing when it comes to working for the kingdom of God. Your status is unimportant. What matters is your response when you're called. Because true calling and relationship is something that's initiated by God. That's something that Yeshua says in John 6, 44. He says, no one is able to come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Right? Unless God initiates it first, calls this person, he can't come to me. The calling of God is not just a command to follow. There's always a promise attached to the command to follow. And that promise is always connected to the kingdom of God. God will give us something for our dedication. He will give us something for our obedience. And at the beginning of chapter 12, we see this pattern begin. And we saw that with Noah. Follow me, build this ark, and you will receive life, right? In the case of Noah. Well, here in the case of Avram, we see the exact same pattern. Follow me, leave your land, leave your family, leave behind your common sense, of how the world is supposed to work, go to a place that you don't know, to these foreign people. I'm not really going to tell you where it is, where you're going. Just follow me. And when you get there, I'll let you know. How radical is that? And the fact of the matter is, the call of God is very radical. It, it won't allow you to stay where you are. Uh, it will require you to do things that don't seem to make sense to most. In essence, God is saying, give up everything that you have built for yourself, everything that's familiar to you. Give up your comfort, your way of life, your family, even your identity. Now stop for a moment and consider this. Just this very first verse in the story of Abram, if we were to put ourselves in his place, it really makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? We get faced with endless questions like, well, what about my friends? What about my family? I'm just supposed to leave them behind? What about security? What about comfort? What about the 401k or the Roth IRA that I've got stored up in the bank? Am I just supposed to cash that out? Where will I work? How will I support myself? How will I support my house? How, do, do I have to sell my house? Do I have to sell my truck, my cars? Do I have to sell all of my stuff? Is it, is it really all of my stuff that I have to give up? What about my dreams? 
What about my ambitions? What about the life that I have built? The life that I have planned? What about, what about, what about? Right? And perhaps the most difficult is, what about a plan? Okay, so you've got a plan, God, but can you let me in on what that plan is? Because I'm over here floundering. I don't know what's going on. <laughs> Avram had none of that stuff. He didn't have a destination. He was told, go. And he went. His father had already started toward Canaan. But we don't know that Avram knew that Canaan was the destination that God had planned for him. He just picked up and continued on to where he, his father was originally intended. He had no plan. He had no way to plan. He really only had obedience in the moment. And I think that's the first step of discipleship, the first thing that we can grasp in this, is that when God is first place in your life, when you answer the call of the kingdom, everything else has to be expendable. Everything. Matthew 19, 16 through 21, we read of that, that rich young ruler that comes to Yeshua and asks him, Master, what good do I have to do in order to gain everlasting life? And what's Yeshua's first response to him? Well, guard the commands of God, right? Do what God says. Obey your father, your mother. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't bear false witness, so on and so forth. And he's like, okay, yeah, I've done all this. Now, guarding God's commands doesn't mean to keep every single one or keeping God's commands. Keeping God's commands is, is a guard term. It's a, it's a soldier term. We're standing there with a spear, keeping others from getting into it and damaging what you're guarding. It's impossible to keep every single one of the commands. There's so many for priests that are women or men or that are very specific to different classes that really don't apply to everyone. If you're not a farmer, the Shemitah stuff is okay. They're not planting, they're giving the ground a rest. That doesn't mean that I'm done, you know, working in my blacksmith forge or whatever your that trade might be. Anyway, he then says, if you wish to be perfect. Now unfortunately the, the translation there of the word teleos, the Greek word teleos is perfect, is, is quite unfortunate. Because it doesn't mean perfect as we conceptualize perfect. Rather it means to be whole or complete. And the difference between those two words is perfect means that you have the pie with the perfectly flaky crust, it's perfectly browned on top, all the ingredients are there in right measure, and it just tastes amazing. Being whole means having a pie with all of the ingredients in it. It's whole. Is it, has it been cooked perfectly? Not necessarily. Is the crust just amazingly flaky and, and just right? Not necessarily. The whole pie is there, though. Okay, that's the difference between perfect and whole. When we see the word perfect in scripture, we need to think whole. All of the pieces, all of the ingredients. Not perfect, like there's nothing that can compare to it. Okay? So it says, if you wish to be complete, so you've gone this far, there, there's other ingredients that you can add in order to be complete in this process of doing good things to gain eternal life. And what does he say? If you wish to follow me as a disciple, you must forsake all of the things of this world. Be willing to give up everything you have at a moment's notice. So we're told that the, the rich young ruler went home sad. We're not told what he did. So let's take a moment. Let's think. If, had he gone home and did what Yeshua said? Okay. 
everything I have is for sale. My house, my flocks, everything is, I'm just selling it all. And the money that I make, I'm not keeping it. I'm giving it to the poor. How would his family and friends have reacted to him doing that? Well, they would have thought he was daft. They would have thought he'd gone crazy. They joined this new Yeshua cult. What is he doing? Or perhaps they would have trotted out some Paul, 1 Timothy 5, 8, against him. And if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, then he's denied the faith and he's worse than an unbeliever. Many who use this verse to attack the idea of what the rich young ruler is doing, they're turning poverty into a sin. If you give up everything that you own radically in order to follow Yeshua, you're sinning because you're obviously not caring for your family or providing for their needs. You're worse than an unbeliever. You're a heretic. You're an infidel. I, I've had this verse used against me by some people very close to me. When we sold our house, we sold all of our possessions in our house, and we used that money to get out of debt. People attacked us with that verse, First Timothy 5.8, and they called us a heretic. They called us an infidel. They said that we're worse than an unbeliever by, for doing so. Had that rich young ruler gone home, how many of his friends would have attacked him and said, you are worse than an unbeliever for doing this. How? What are you doing? It doesn't make any sense. And that's the thing. Discipleship does not make common sense. It will have you doing things that you never thought you were capable of, things that just are absolutely baffling. But when we look through the New Testament, we look at everybody in the New Testament, everyone who is held up as an example that we are to follow, whether it be Yeshua himself, whether it be the apostles, whether it be the disciples, regardless of who it is, they all made that same choice. They all left everything they had. They left their trades, they left their homes, they left their families, and they followed Yeshua. They became part of his entourage. We know that Peter was married. He had a mother-in-law. We don't know what happened to his wife. Did he leave his wife behind to follow Yeshua? Was she following along as part of his entourage, walking out of their home and dragging perhaps children along with them as her husband is following this itinerant rabbi, this teacher that's walking through the land? Come on, kids. Yeshua's going there and Daddy's going to follow, so let's go with him. We don't know what happened to Peter's wife. We only know that Peter followed. In Matthew 19, 27-30, it speaks of leaving everything behind to follow Yeshua. And as a reward is resurrection. That's the reward given for leaving everything behind. And that means leaving behind all that makes up your former life is a requirement of discipleship. Not just leaving behind wealth, not just leaving behind family, but then taking on persecution and taking on hardship. Luke 9.23, if anyone wishes to follow me, he must deny himself. He must take up his cross. If you're a disciple, you've got to be persecuted. You're going to suffer in this life. But your reward's going to be totally worth it in the end. Usually, this action as we see it today doesn't mean walking away from your family. It doesn't mean leaving your, your position. In fact, Paul talks about that, that if anyone is a slave, then don't stay a slave. If he's a, if he's a master, then don't stay a master, you know? Don't, don't, simply because you come into this, don't like leave your role in life. It doesn't mean you can't move 
into something else at a later date, but don't do it immediately. A lot of times, I think the way that we can apply this today is that it, it simply means being obedient in the face of their condemnation as they judge the things you're doing that they don't understand. Leaving your family behind means doing what God said and allowing them to judge you and just doing it anyway. It doesn't make sense. It's completely contrary to common sense. But Matthew 10.37 says that he who, he who loves his father or his mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves his son or his daughter more than me is not worthy of me. A little over two and a half years ago, I felt that call in my life myself. My wife and I, we sold our house. I closed my computer business, the only trade that I was qualified in. We stepped out in faith and believed that God would catch us. If he called us, he will catch us. Because he'd made it very clear in our life that having all of these trappings, they were not serving him. In fact, they were barely serving us. Our families thought we were crazy, and frankly, many of them still do. Many of our friends criticized this action because they didn't understand that what God was calling us to do. We had to leave behind what was comfortable to us. I had to leave behind that only trade I was qualified in. I stepped out in faith that God would catch us. And for two months, we just wondered. We slept on couches and living rooms. We slept in hotel rooms. We slept in our car. We slept in a tent. We just wandered from place to place. Anytime we'd get just about settled, God would make us uncomfortable. He'd give us this sensation that it's time to go again. Time to go again. We have to move again. And as we look at the story of Avram, this is what happens to him. He took his possessions that he had and he moved to the land of Canaan. Now, God had promised Avraham, leave your family, I will bless you, right? And through you, I will bless the world. So Abraham goes in obedience. He goes where God calls him to. And he does some wondering, and he gets to the place where he thinks he's supposed to be. And God follows up with another promise. He says, this land you're standing on right now, I'm going to give that to you. It's yours. Abraham had been obedient. He'd followed through on God's command. God had named it, so Abraham, all he has to do claim it, right? A vision had been given, the promise had been made. Abraham, with this promise in mind, he can now simply claim ownership of the land of Canaan. If Avram was a modern-day Westerner, I, I like to think that he would have actually acted in this way. He would have gone out, he would have done whatever it took to get that land. He would have leveraged his wealth, he would have gotten loans, he would have gotten mortgages, he would have purchased the promised land on his own and been left with a bill that was way too steep to pay. And that's not what we read, though. Instead, as soon as Avram gets to the land, there's a famine. He's forced to leave what God has promised him, to actively walk away from God's promise. And where does he go? Does he go, he goes to a place of tyranny, a place where he could be killed for the sake of someone simply wishing to possess his wife. Once again, imagine yourself in Avram's place. Wait a minute, God. Hey, you made me a promise. You told me the land would be mine. 
You told me that you would bless me and then through me you would bless the world. You told me that you were going to watch out for me. Yet as soon as I did the thing you told me to do, I'm forced to move? I have to go somewhere else? I have to give it up and walk away? Really? Now I'm living in fear of my own life. I'm giving up my wife to another man just to stay alive. Where are you in this God? Because our modern impulse is for instant gratification. God's made a promise, and if it isn't in our possession within a few weeks, then we begin to doubt God's sincerity to fulfill that promise. I can't tell you the number of stories that I have heard of people who believe that God has promised them one thing or another, and so they name it and claim it. They go out and they seize hold of it under their own power, believing that God will just make up the difference. Many times they do what they think God's asking them to do, by going into really deep debt. Buy the building, gather the resources, buy the land. Other times they hurry into it with the wrong people, simply because of the people that are around them. They heard what God wanted. The idea is that God has given me this vision, and so now it's up to me to make it happen, and God will just bless whatever I do. What would have happened had Abraham bought the land of Canaan because God had promised it to him, leveraged himself to the hilt in debt, and then the famine hit. What would have he done? He wouldn't have been able to pay that loan. He would have been forced into slavery himself immediately because he didn't wait for God's timing for it to come about. And that's the second thing we've got to understand. Not just the cost associated with discipleship or with being dedicated to the kingdom of God. But it's that when God makes a promise, it's on God to fulfill that promise. And when he gives you a vision, he'll fulfill that vision. All we have to do is continue to act in obedience, regardless of how nonsensical that obedience seems. Not a single covenant or promise of scripture is carried out instantly. In fact, as I considered all of the promises that God gives to various people, there's only twice that it's almost near instant. And that's in the case of Zechariah and Mary in the New Testament, with the birth of John the Baptist and Yeshua. However, even those were things that were promised centuries before through the prophets. They weren't immediate. It was God had promised those things, and then God revealed, okay, now is the time for that to happen. Every other covenant, every other promise that God makes, it's delayed. Abram has promised that his seed will bless the earth, right? Well, it's 25 years before that promise is realized in its proper manner. Abram's promised the land of Israel, right? It's 470 years approximately before that promise comes to fruition. Another example, David was anointed as king as a young boy. How many years does it take before he gets to the throne? In fact, that's one of the things that makes David so unique, and I think one of the things that makes him a man after God's own heart, is he doesn't seize the opportunities that are put before him to take a hold of the promise under his own power. He's given two opportunities to kill Saul, 
as he's being actively persecuted by Saul. And what's David's response? Who am I to kill God's anointed? If God's going to make me king, he is going to make me king. I'm not making myself king. He anointed me. He'll make it happen. I have to worry about this persecution because I know God's going to watch out. If he's promised this, I have to live to see it, right? Yeah, it meant several extra years of persecution, several extra years of hardship. But then when he came into his kingdom, he was, hands down, the king. There was no argument from the outside tribes, from the other, other parts of the nation of Israel. They recognized him as the king. Had he risen up against Saul and taken the position, uh, then you're looking at an immediate civil war, an immediate split of the kingdom. Now, David does face civil war later, but that's, but that's a, something completely different. That's something that he does after he's king. Another example, Jeremiah the prophet, as they're leaving Israel, being taken into Babylonian captivity, he, he prophesies that it'll be 70 years when they return. And then later in the book of Daniel, Daniel's considering this, this prophecy and he recognizes, hey, the time is almost upon us for this to occur. And so he enters into this prayer with God. Thank you, God, for this promise that you've given. Forgive us of our sins. Yeah, we've, we've done horribly. We did some really stupid things. You've been just in what you've done, but the time to come back is, is upon us. And an angel comes to Daniel and reveals to him that returning to the land doesn't necessarily mean what you may think it means. It doesn't mean a return to the way things were before. In fact, the fullest of this is going to take another 77s, whatever that means. The fullness of this being realized, that's, that's still future, even after the return. Even after the order goes out to rebuild the temple, it's going to take several centuries before that temple and this nation is realized once again in its fullest measure. Impatience, such a difficult thing for us to do. We really want to rush right into things when the time is not right. Rushing in brings disobedience. Because remember, David, he was chosen as a contrast to Saul. When was it that Saul was declared to be removed from his position as king the first time? In 1 Samuel 13, 7-14, we read that story. Saul had a few chapters previously been told, When you go to the Galilee, Gilgal, when you go there, wait seven days. I, Samuel, I'll show up, we'll offer an offering, and then you will be confirmed as king. Well, Saul goes to the Galilee, he's fighting an army there, and things are looking pretty bad. He's waiting, he's waiting, he's waiting. He's like, I gotta wait the seven days. I was told to wait the seven days. Let's wait, let's wait, let's wait. And he's waiting, and as he's waiting, his men are drifting away, running off, deserting his army. And his army keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller. And he gets to the seventh day, and Saul's like, you know what, enough waiting. I'm gonna go ahead, I'm gonna do the sacrifice myself. As he's doing the sacrifice, Samuel shows up. He took it upon himself to act in a role that was not appointed for him. He took it upon himself to seize something that was not yet time for. And it's in that moment that Saul is declared unfit to be king. It takes a few years for that to work out. All those years of David <laughs> being persecuted by Saul. 
it takes a long time for that whole event to work out, for him to cease being king. But when he is no longer king, it's very decisive that he's no longer king, the way that it all works out. And patience is not easy. In fact, it's probably one of the most difficult parts of discipleship, in my opinion. Being patient for God's salvation and his deliverance isn't easy when our own failure and destruction seems to be just around the corner. It's perhaps one of the toughest things to live out because we want to act. We want to go do it now. Continuing to work in obedience, even while all the trappings of life crumble around us and around our ears, while our fears beset us from every side, keeping our eyes focused on the goal, while everything else around you fails, is so difficult. Peter wasn't able to do it when he walked out on the water. His circumstances got the better of him. We have to believe beyond our past experience of what has happened and believe that God is faithful and powerful and regardless of what's happened in the past, what he wants is what will happen in the future. If he's given you a promise, if he's told you to go do something, be faithful to do it in his way. Don't seize it for yourself, or you will fail. As we move into chapter 13, we get another contrast. Both Avram and Lot, they're called righteous men in Scripture. Both served Hashem. Both left their home to follow Hashem. Only one of them was called, though. The other one was following. And they lived their lives differently as we consider their lives in contrast to each other. we got Avraham, the man who's following God, the man who's building altars, who's worshiping Hashem, who is dedicated to the kingdom of God. And we've got Lot, also righteous, but who's following a leader, Avram. He's not following Hashem. He's not once recorded as building an altar. He sinks the bountiful and the easy life, and he appears to be building his own kingdom rather than the kingdom of God. As he's given the option, you go right or left and I'll go the other, he looks and he says, well, obviously, I'm going to take the easy life. I'm going to go to the cities. It's beautiful, it's green, well-watered land, there's people everywhere. And he looks with his eyes, completely disregarding the issues of the heart, the inhabitants, his future neighbors, and that the entirety of their way of life was wickedness. Those who were sinning and who were doing evil in his surrounding didn't figure into his decision that he was making. He chooses to associate with evil and to exist in the presence of evil for the sake of comfort and ease. He wants that relatively easy life. Lot's choice of location for moving it leads to some real hardship for his family. He ends up captured by an evading army. He has to leave last minute his home in order to escape the destruction of the city when it comes. He ends up drunk in a cave, taken advantage of by his own daughters. Poor Lot, right? He made some really bad decisions, and yet, yet he's still righteous. And we'll talk about that more when we get to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, how we can see Lot himself being called out as someone who is righteous. But when we're moving forward in discipleship, as we're moving forward in dedication, when we are attempting to be obedient to God and plotting our course through this madness called life, Choosing with our eyes will lead us to a place of failure. A place of having absolutely 
no effect for the kingdom of God. Lot moved to the city to the people who are wicked. And where do we find him? 25 years down the road? 20 years down the road? Living in the city. He's no longer in the fields with his flocks. And he has zero rapport with his surrounding neighbors. Zero authority. No ability to change their minds. In fact, he hasn't changed a single one by living among them. Choosing the option that will build your own kingdom, even if it looks a lot like choosing the kingdom of God, it will lead to failure. And this third point is provided an example of what not to do, as exemplified by Lot. We can't look with our eyes. We have to follow God's leading, wherever that leading is. 2 Corinthians 4, 17-18 says, For this light and momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. No matter what it looks like to the eyes, no matter what the cost might be, you can work righteousness in your life. You can be a righteous person and not be a disciple. You can not follow God with all of your will. That's an option. You can serve your eyes. You can serve your bottom line. And you can be like Lot, called righteous, saved from destruction in the last minute, but completely incapable of changing the world around you because you look so much like the world. And then comes the fourth principle of discipleship, and that is humility and love. Love itself, that's such a, uh, such a useless word in English. I love my cats. I love tacos. I love certain movies. I love my wife. I use the same word for each one of these, but if I apply that word equally to each of those things, I've got some serious issues in my life. In English, we tend to think of love as a general sense of affinity or attraction. And that's not biblical love at all, because love in the Bible is something that you do. It's a choice that you make. Love is demonstrated primarily by giving, giving time, giving preference, giving resources, giving honor, and more. It's looking out for someone else's interests before your own interests. In this case, Avram was in charge. He was the leader. He could have taken what he wanted. But instead, he backed away in humility and in love for Lot. He allowed Lot to have the first choice. I see this again all, all too often in this Torah movement. We leave love behind in our zealousness to tear down the works of the enemy. We leave love behind as we pursue knowledge and we pursue exacting box checking, making sure that we're fulfilling the command in just the right way. We spend all of our time reading and studying God's word and little to no time acting it out in the world. We spend all of our expendable money giving to this teacher or that teacher, to this book or this author or another, and yet people in our own community, in our own churches, our own synagogues, have missed rent or buried in massive debt. Some people don't in our own communities don't know where their next meal is coming from. People in our own community need clothes and cannot afford them. And we're giving money to this online teacher. We're giving money to do these other things, to support building projects. In Matthew 25, 31-46, we read of the separating of the sheep from the goats. And what is the difference between the sheep and the goats? Because both sheep and goats are clean animals before God. In the sense of humans, they're both righteous, right? But what's the difference between them? One of them 
acted in love. The other did not. Those who gave of their own goods in order to bring just a sliver of the kingdom of God into the lives of those who had nothing, they're the ones declared righteous. Those who gave to all that asked without checking whether the recipient was worthy of that, they're called worthy. Rather than asking, is this person worthy of my charity or worthy of my money? We need to simply ask, is there a need present? If there's a need present, then they're all worthy. No other qualifications need to be considered. Deuteronomy 15.7 says, When there's a poor man with you, one of your brothers, within any of the gates in your land in which Hashem your God is giving you, do not harden your heart nor shut your hand from your poor brother, for you shall certainly open your hand to him and certainly lend him enough for his need, whatever it is. James puts it this way in chapter 2, verse 15 through 17. He says, If a brother or sister is naked and in need of daily food, but one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warm, and be filled, but you don't give him his bodily needs? What use is it? So also faith, if it does not have works, is in itself dead. We like to pretend that our rule-keeping and box-checking will produce righteousness, but that's not the way any of this works. If our walk is only about keeping the rules just so, and meeting exacting standards of compliance before you can help anyone out, then Yeshua was doing the wrong, and he acted completely wrong. He was in the wrong for attacking the Pharisees the way he did, because the Pharisees, Pharisees kept the law better than you or I could ever dream of keeping the law. They kept the Torah to a standard that was so exacting that they'd added things to it to prevent people from getting close to transgressing the Torah. They tithed to the temple in the most excruciating detail. And yet they didn't care for the sick and the poor among them. In their zealousness, they forgot to love. They forgot to love their neighbor. And instead they became judgmental and murderous to anyone who disagreed with them. We can't be like that. The kingdom of God is not a halfway deal. Dedication means giving all. Our life, our finances, our relationships, our honor, everything means putting the kingdom of God as the priority in our lives. Everything else has to come second. Everything else has to come second. It means waiting for God to deliver on his promises, to fulfill the covenant in his terms, in his time. We can't force what he says to come true. If his promises, if the things that we think he's promised us are from him, he will ensure they happen. We simply have to continue to walk the path of obedience regardless of what our circumstances look like. We simply cannot turn to the nations and put ourselves in debt to them for the purpose of the kingdom because then you start serving two masters. You have to pay the loan. How can you pay the loan when times get tough, when the famine comes? And it will come. Dedication means listening to God, following His lead, and looking and choosing not according to our eyes and not even according to our common sense. His leading must take precedence, even when what he asks us to do doesn't make any sense. Dedication means acting in humility and, and in love, allowing others to take the lead and to have their preferred choice, even when that 
choice may cause difficulty in your life. But most of all, discipleship means we have to learn to love again. We have to learn to care for the weakest and vulnerable. We have to put ourselves in the position of vulnerability and weakness. We have to learn that exacting obedience means nothing if we don't act in love. It means nothing if we don't care for each other, because caring for each other is the greatest act of obedience there is. Eating a purely kosher diet, keeping the feast days on the exact date, they mean nothing if you don't care for those who are in need. 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 tells us that even gifts of prophecy and tongues and knowledge, all of these other spiritual gifts are completely useless if they're not acted out in love. If we don't have love, Revelation says that God will remove his spirit from our midst. If we're only pursuing rule-keeping, box-checking, we're going to end up being completely useless to the kingdom of God. The question that I still have yet to consider to decide on is, is it possible to be a believer in Hashem and Yeshua and not be a disciple? Is it possible to be part of the kingdom and not fully sold out and actively working for that kingdom? Can you be a believer? and not be dedicated to the cause. Can you be that rich man who returns home, keeps his wealth to himself, continues to keep the commands and still count it as righteous, still gaining eternal life? But when the man walked away, after he had left, after he had said, give everything that you have, Yeshua then stated this in Matthew 19, 23-24, Yeshua said to his disciples, Truly I say to you that it is harder for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heavens. And again I say to you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eyes of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Are you the rich man relying on your own resources to keep you comfortable? Abraham was a rich man. He had a lot. But it was what he did with his riches. Did Abraham choose his own comfort? Or did he choose to use those riches for the kingdom, for the purposes of the kingdom? Are you willing to keep the commands, but not share your wealth, your time, your home, your every resource? Are you so focused on building your kingdom, your desires, even fulfilling your own responsibilities, your way of doing things, that you neglect the weightier matters? And it's time for each one of us to decide. Uh, time for decision is now. And the time for decision is tomorrow. And it's the next day. It's every moment, every day, we have to decide. Are we going to build our kingdom, or are we going to build God's kingdom? And at times, it's super easy. And at times, that decision can be, oh, so difficult. Because dedication isn't about having at all. It's not about living the good life or even having enough. Dedication is about doing the right thing when no one else will. It's about giving of your very self for the good of others. Dedication is not dependent on what I can get for myself for any situation. Dedication to Hashem, to Yeshua, to His kingdom, that's the difficult path. It's not an easy road, or it's not the path of least resistance. It'll cost you something. It cost Abraham a lot. 
wrought in regards to his social status, to his comfort. So I'm going to leave you with this. Can you truly say that you are dedicated to the kingdom of God? Can you truly say that everything else in your life is second place? Are you willing to pay the price? It's not a cheap price. It'll cost you your very life, your every breath. Are you willing to return to God what he has given you? That breath, that life. Think on these things. Consider them as you go forward. And as always, in everything you do, Yerushkai, Sifai. Shalom. Thank you for tuning in to Derish Kai. If you would like to find out more or support this ministry, head over to SeekLifeSC.com. That's SeekLifeSC.com. We'll see you again next time as we Derish Kai, as we seek life. Shalom.